Today is March 15, 2021. Welcome to another episode. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Saito. He's another faculty member of the program. And there are topics which are very sensitive, but we need to talk about those topics, such as the case of domestic abuse among doctors. Dr. Saito, do you know what is the most important risk factor to be a victim of domestic abuse? Not sure. Why don't you tell me? Yes, being female. And doctors are not an exception. Recently, in February 2021, the British Journal of General Practice posted an article addressing this topic. The aim of the article is to understand the experience of female doctors as victims of domestic abuse, the barriers that they faced, and the impact that domestic abuse had on their work. The study was limited to doctor mothers, because the author had access to this group and she was a member of the online forum and a single doctor herself. Uh, so 114 doctors expressed interest in the study, but a total of 21 participants were interviewed. The criteria to be included in the study were being a single mother, working as a doctor, and having previously left an abusive relationship. Each interview lasts about um, 44 to 113 minutes and were conducted from August 2019 to March 2020. The interviews were recorded. The principal author of the study can be seen and heard in the interview on the British Journal of General Practices podcast. The doctors felt that stress of domestic abuse affected their quality of work, but were unable to participate in seeking help because of the social stigma. One of the barriers they saw was uh, included lack of a confidentiality. You know, you're a doctor, you work there. You know, there is a concern about that. And when the other partner was a doctor as well, it made it even more difficult for those female doctors to find help. One of the participants expressed that the social services did not treat her with respect when she told them that her abuser was a doctor. Also, the participants expressed embarrassment and shame because of their status as a doctor, and she, as she stated, she felt, felt um, that doctors should know better. Another negative connotation going through domestic abuse as a doctor is that the particular individual, the person being abused, quote, is not capable of taking care of the patients if she cannot take care of herself. The barriers to finding help include owning up to domestic abuse, not seeking help from social services and work hours. Doctors feel socially and professionally isolated because they're not able to talk about abuse and fear the consequences of re reporting. One of the most helpful things for victims of domestic abuse was an online social group. You know, good point for social media and social, social interaction in the internet. The author added that domestic abuse training should be taught in medical school as doctors can be victims of abuse as well. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Question of the month is on polyarthralgia. And woohoo, this is match week. 
Congratulations to everyone. Before we discuss the question of the week, we want to wish you well and hope that you match to your dream residency. So for the question of the month, this is Valerie Savelli, and this is the last week you have to answer your question. We have received very interesting answers, but we are hoping to receive yours. Here it is. A 49-year-old female comes to the clinic reporting bilateral wrist and ankle pain for one month. The pain responds well to ibuprofen. She denies joint swelling, warmth, and morning stiffness. She reports feeling very fatigued. You know on her chart that she was diagnosed with COVID-19 six weeks ago, and this did not require hospitalization. She denies any relevant past medical history. She denies trauma, bleeding, headaches, chest pain, shortness of breath, or dizziness. Exam is remarkable for a tired look and tenderness to palpation to bilateral wrist and ankle. No signs of inflammation on the joints are noted. What do you think is the ideology of the patient's symptoms and what workup would you do, if any? So let's repeat the question. What do you think is the etiology of the symptoms in a 49-year-old female who complains of symmetrical ankle and wrist pain with fatigue for one month? What workup would you order? And the clue, listen carefully to the history of the patient. Send us your answers to rbresidency at clinicaseravista.org before March 22nd, 2021. And remember, the winner will receive a prize. Thank you, Dr. Saito, for talking about that very sensitive topic in the introduction. And um, right now I have Dr. Claudia Carranza. Today has been a very active day for you. Yeah. So she was placing an IJ central line. A fake one. <laughs> ultrasound guided. So then she gave a lecture on asthma, right? And now yeah. she's going to talk about the very great retinopathy. So yes. thank you, Claudia, for being so good in what you do. I think we're we're oh, exploiting you. we're exploiting you. We're, no, we're, we're juicing you in the last months of your residency. Oh, that's good. That's good. I like it. <laughs> okay. So well, there is a lot of um, stuff that we're gonna talk to uh, talk about today. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of uh, about di diabetic retinopathy, and we uh, as primary care physicians are the front line to detect this on time for patients, mm -hmm. and we know there is a very um, bad consequence of poor glycemic control. So a lot of us send out referrals for diabetic retinopathy screenings every day, yeah. every day of our work. And now we all learned about this topic in medical school, but it is important to do an overview as to what diabetic retinopathy really entails. Uh, this will help us as providers to be able to explain it to our patients better and also for our listeners to have a better understanding of a much feared complication of diabetes. Yeah. So for all of our listeners, I just wanted to do a quick review on diabetes. Um, a lot of us have heard about high sugars and diabetes, but what is it really? Uh, diabetes is a disease in which carbohydrates are not processed correctly in our body, leading to an increase of glucose in our blood. 
Insulin is made in the pancreas and its job is to regulate carbs or that glucose by sending them to the liver, the fat, the skeletal muscle, and you need glucose to function, but you need it in all of those places. You don't need it in your blood vessels. You need it in your organs. Yeah. So the way I explain it to patients too is, um, you know, each cell in our body, they need glucose Mm -hmm. and, um, to, for the glucose to get into the cell, they need a key, and the key is the insulin. Oh, and the keyhole <laughs> is the receptor. Mm -hmm. So when the key or the keyhole are not working properly, then mm -hmm. the the glucose uh, stays in the blood. So that's and that causes a lot of problems. You know, high mm -hmm. glucose. Glucose is a very damaging damaging mole molecule yeah. uh, for for different cells if it's not in the right place. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Let's just go over the symptoms of diabetes. So the patient might complain of lots of urination. You also can call this polyuria and nocturia. They'll have increased thirst, weight loss, increased appetite, blurred vision. Um, they'll have multiple UTIs sometimes. Um, they'll also have fatigue. They can present with numbness and tingling of the extremities. Um, just in other words, think of any symptoms that you would have if honey was running through your bloodstream instead of blood. So everything is kind of slowing down. Yeah. So and then we do the A1C and we give the results to our patients. Right. Yeah. Uh, I tell my patients this is this number is the way to measure the sugar coating of our red blood cells over the last three months. So if your cells are exposed to higher amounts of glucose, then the number will be higher. Um, and I always tell them. For us, if the percentage of coverage of those red blood cells is more than 6.5, then that's diabetes. If it's less than 5.7, then that is normal. And if you're in between 5.7 to 6.4, that means you are pre-diabetic. So you kind of have to watch out for your diet and maybe some more exercise so that you don't tiptoe into the diabetic range. Mm-hmm. So uh, th this uh, glucose metabolism problem is kind of a spectrum. You know, what we call prediabetes is basically impaired glucose metabolism. Mm -hmm. And when you have a patient with an A1C above 5.8, that's probably an, you know, it's an alarm for the patient that the glucose is not being metabolized normally. So they need to ma make changes in their lives to prevent the future of um, diabetes. In, in their case. So um, so we know that the main targets, organs in, in diabetes are, you know, the eyes, the kidneys, the nerves. And the first things to get damaged are the smallest blood vessels, the capillaries, and, and those uh, feed these organs, basically. Uh, today we're going to talk about the damage of the retinal vessels, what we call the diabetic retinopathy. But before we go there, so this is something that I use with my patients uh, to explain the organs. You know, I kind of um, go from head to toe to explain to them what organs are damaged by diabetes. In that way, I don't forget anything. So I start with the brain. You know, you can have higher risk of stroke. Then I go, you know, the eyes, and blindness, retinopathy. Mm -hmm. Then the heart. You can have problems, um, heart attacks and other problems with the coronary arteries and circulation in general and then the kidneys you know they know that they know family members and no friends that they end up having dialysis and and the feet um, because they can have infections on their feet full ulcer, ulcers 
And also, I don't forget to mention to the, especially the male patients, <laughs> you know, the penis. And I tell mm-hmm. them that very often in my, in my, during my visits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you guys listened to a couple of episodes ago, uh, you and Dr. Hijerika spoke about erectile dysfunction. So that's definitely a good topic to review as well. But, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So for um, diabetic retinopathy, it's actually one of the most important causes of visual loss worldwide. And the main reason for impaired vision in patients 25 to 74 as the retina becomes damaged. Um, an, issue, an issue is that people will not develop symptoms until they are in late stages of diabetic retinopathy. And one in five patients with newly diagnosed diabetes will have already signs of um, diabetic retinopathy. Okay, let's get into the details. How, how does it happen, Dr. Carranza? Mm-hmm. So in patients with diabetes, glucose runs through the circulatory system. Glucose and the protein at the walls of the blood vessels react. And over time, they damage the collagen of these blood vessels. The collagen keeps the blood vessels plump. When they get damaged, the capillaries get thickened and the walls start to break down. So the timing of your diabetes is a good predictor for diabetic retinopathy. After about 10 years, 50% of people will have it, 15 years, 90%. But it all really depends on your A1C. The more uncontrolled, the quickest you will have side effects and damage and you will end up with the diabetic retinopathy. Okay, so uh, let's uh, explain a little bit more about proliferative and non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy because we, we hear those terms all the time when we get the reports. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. So non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy is also known as background retinopathy, meaning it just kind of sits in the background for years. 95% of people with diabetic retinopathy have non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Usually, it is at an early stage and the progression is very slow. It is the result of the capillary breakdown with leakage of fluid into the retina. You can also have little aneurysms at the blood vessels and those can burst and show the blood and dot hemorrhages um, that are small and round and can be seen on fundoscopic exam. Uh, When it worsens, there is decreased blood flow to the retina, which... um, Causing, which causes ischemia of the superficial retinal nerve fibers. That can also be seen on fundoscopic exam as the infamous, you guys have probably heard about this, the cotton wool spots. Um, worsening capillary breakdown can also lead to beating um, and like, like forming like little beats of the larger retinal veins. Now, the other type of diabetic retinopathy is a plur proliferative, sorry, retinopathy. Um, The way this one occurs is that when the vessels are very damaged, they occlude completely and you end up with no blood supply. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. But our bodies are very smart and usually try to fix themselves. So how does the retina react to this lack of blood flow? Well, so it sends chemicals like VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, that stimulates growth of new vessels. This process is called neovascularization. It sounds pretty great, right? (laughs) But the problem is that these new vessels are not top-notch. They are abnormal, they're friable, they're prone to leaking, and on top of that, they grow in the wrong places. For example, if it grows in the vitreous jelly, 
which has a framework of proteins. So just think of a, like a little, I don't know if you think of a filter and it has like all these little uh, things intertwined. Um, these blood vessels will tag at these proteins and then you end up with a retinal detachment. That's not good. Mm. Um, these vessels can also bleed into the eye and they cause vision loss. Um, and if they grow into the iris, they can block the trabecular meshwork, which is where you kind of drain all the liquid um, from the eye, and it can cause neovascular glaucoma. And just of note, uh, proliferative retinopathy can advance quickly, and half of the patients can go blind if it is left untreated. Wow. So it's incredible how our bodies react to, <laughs> you know, to different injuries. Uh, you know, neovascularization will be something positive in some areas, but in the <laughs> retina, it's not so good. So all of these changes, these new vessels can cause, they sound pretty bad in the yeah. retina. Uh, besides this neovascular glaucoma, are there other issues that can result from diabetic retinopathy? Yeah. Uh, another issue I know is macular edema. Yeah, we and we see that all the time in the reports too. It says either it has macular edema or no macular edema. Mm -hmm. So let's start talking about what the macula is. So the macula is the functional center of the retina, which has a, a high concentration of photoreceptors. So it's basically the center of high definition and color vision. So it's basically the center of the retina. It's a very important part of the retina. Yes. And the problem is that macular edema occurs in 10% of patients with diabetic retinopathy. More commonly, you see it with severe retinopathy. Um, what happens is that the leakage of the capillaries and microaneurysms cause the macular retina to swell up with fluid. Now, this swelling can go away, but once it goes away, you will see on the fundoscopic exam that there are heart exudates. These hard exudates are fatty lipids that are left behind after the swelling stops. So I just wanted to say I highly encourage all of you listeners to Google all these different findings like the cotton wool spots, uh, hard exudates. I think I mentioned another one earlier on. But, you know, it's very interesting to see if you look at a regular normal retina and you look at diabetic changes, it's very impressive how much the eye can change. So. Yeah, I think the best thing we can do as physicians is recommend our patients, you know, and try our best to work with them and control their, their glucose so they don't yeah. end up with this diabetic retinopathy and also have uh, a night check every year, mm -hmm. a checkup. Now, let's talk about the patients who already have diabetic retinopathy. Let's talk what treatments they receive. There is um, a laser treatment uh, that's one of the options. The laser can seal the leaking vessels and the microaneurysms, which can be done when there's only a few and that they are well-defined. Um, if the area is too large, then PRP or pan-retinal photocoagulation can be done. Um, what it does is that it burns thousands of spots around the peripheral retina in a way to decrease the stimulus from the, blue, from the new vessels. Wow, that sounds like a, <laughs> a big burn yeah. all around the retina. And um, uh, do you learn any about anything about the side effects uh, with that procedure? Yeah, so the side effects with this is that um, there's decreased peripheral vision and decreased night vision as you end up with like, less of the peripheral rod receptors. 
Okay, so some patients, they after the procedure, they see less, but at least that stops the progression of that con the, the disease. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, there's other treatments. So one of the other treatments could be with an anti-VEGF or VEGF agent. Uh, those are used to treat proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and they're injected into the vitreous. There are three um, that I found on up to date. <laughs> uh, ranibizumab, bevazizumab, and aflibercept. Interesting fact is that uh, bevazizumab is used off-label for retinopathy, and it has to be repackaged to a strength of 1 to 500th. <laughs> one to the 500th of the dose for cancer treatment. So it's very, very, very little. So um, I have lots of patients, they say that they got shots in their in their in eyes. Eye. Yeah. So they were right. I was thinking they were making something up. <laughs> so <laughs> It sounds very extreme, but yeah. I guess very common too. So, and then um, just to end with this part, um, let's talk about vitrectomy. Yeah, that's for progressive disease. So vitrectomy can be performed and it is the removal of the vitreous humor. Uh, at this point, the vitreous humor will be filled with blood, uh, inflammatory cells, and debris. I had read that it usually is replaced with saline, but I actually learned from an ophthalmologist that you don't have to replace it with saline, but can be replaced with air or gas. And he even said, like, you can just kind of leave it empty. <laughs> but it seems like after a while... Uh, what happens is that your eye, your aqueous fluid will be, will replace anything that you put in, in there instead of the vitreous anyways. So your eye will take care of it. Okay. So vitrectomy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you learned a lot in this, um, this rotation. It was an elective rotation for you, right? Yeah. So it was great. <laughs> will you recommend it? To oh, yeah. Residents? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I saw yeah. things I had never seen before. <laughs> That's great. And, and that rotation also includes, I think, some time in the in the OR. Oh, so. yeah. I saw a few cataract surgeries. Um, I saw a pterygium removal. Okay. And probably saw some one more thing. But there were different types of cataract surgeries because what, some of the lenses can be different if you want them to just see far and close up and also mm. it, it depends on the insurance actually but yeah. but it was just cool and they're really quick and just such a tiny little area to work with mm -hmm. for the ophthalmologist not me because i was just kind of watching from the side <laughs> <laughs> but it was really interesting to see it yeah, yeah it's an interesting specialty for sure mm -hmm. do you know what uh, um i had a cornea transplant actually <gasps> no yeah wow. uh, uh, about 10 years ago because wow. I had a keratoconus and they gave me the video for me to watch and oh. I haven't watched it because I feel like I don't want to see my eye being you know oh really undergoing surgery so yeah but it's a very interesting specialty so Dr. Carranza what conclusion can you give us for this episode then I would say definitely definitely talk to your patients about all the side effects of diabetes. Um, I think a lot of my patients, when I see them, they're like, I don't know what the A1C is. I don't know. Oh, really? Like that can happen. And sometimes I say like, you know, you can end up on dialysis. You can end up with amputation. You can end up blind. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. But I don't necessarily understand that they can help it. You know, they, it's very interesting for us to just kind of push them and say, you can prevent this. And I know sometimes it goes in one ear and goes out the other, but the more you say it, hopefully 
at least for some of them, it will stick and you can prevent them from getting to those stages of diabetes. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the treatment of diabetes is, is improving over the years. Mm -hmm. So we have newer medications that are very effective. Yeah. And uh, I'm very hopeful that, you know, diabetes is going to be, become a more man manageable disease now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have a patient with diabetes, remember to order uh, an annual eye exam. Yes. If the patient reports vision changes even before the year, it's okay to send them to the ophthalmologist because uh, they need to be evaluated. Any kind of way, uh, I mean, vision changes or vision loss, they need to be evaluated by the specialist. Yeah, and same for, don't forget to do like yearly to the monofilament test, check their feet, tell them to check their feet. That's something that a lot of them are like, what? What do you mean I have to check my feet? Yeah, my feet are fine. I'm like, no, you understand. <laughs> this can happen. You, you might lose sensation. And also, um, if you see any changes on their um, GFR, if their GFR is going to, uh, I think about three or so, then you want to send them to nephrology or if you see any type of microalbuminuria, mm -hmm. you also want to start referring them and have someone else to kind of also, it's going to be a lot of education that they're going to receive and maybe some medication changes. Yeah. Diabetes care, you know, a yeah. lot to say, a lot to talk about. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Preventable. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Still preventable and reversible. Yes. If, with the appropriate treatment, the appropriate changes in, in lifestyle, in many cases, it's uh, reversible too. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Carranza. And My pleasure. I hope you guys enjoyed it and have a nice week. Yeah. Bye-bye. What do you call a fish without eye? A F S H. <laughs> there are a lot of people with 2020 vision. How come none of them warned us about Corona? <laughs> it's in 2020. Oh. <laughs> okay. Why did the cross-eyed teacher quit her job? She couldn't control her pupils. <laughs> her pupils. I'm beginning to think adult supervision is a myth. In fact, vision just seems to be getting worse. Supervision, stupid. <laughs> Supervision. Now we conclude our episode number 44, Diabetic Retinopathy. We learned that high glucose is very harmful to the retina. Let's teach our patients the importance of glycemic control to prevent blindness. Remember, to order a retinopathy screening at least once a year or whenever your patient reports changes in their vision. This is also the last week to answer our question about polyarthralgia and fatigue in a 49-year-old female who has a key element in her history. Send us your answer this week, and you can receive a prize. Remember, even without trying, every night you go to bed being wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaseravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Claudia Carranza, Stephen Saito, Udavir Brar, Valerie Savelli, and Anonymous Medical Assistants. Audio by Saraja Murutia. See you next week. <laughs>